we have been studying the Sermon on the Mount. In studying the Sermon on the Mount, it's very important that our Lord Jesus Christ is going to make a great deal of difference between what the scribes and the Pharisees call righteousness and what he calls righteousness. And um, he wants us to know in verse 20 of chapter 5, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Then he reminded us in the lesson last week that one of the Old Testament commandments was that thou shalt do no murder. But then he told us, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and that's the local court in their community, whosoever shall say to his brother, Reka, that means empty head or blockhead, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, that's the Sanhedrin, the 70 in Jerusalem. Whosoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the hell of fire. He means by that that we destroy the personhood of an individual by our cutting remarks. Uh, Probably this is one of the things that we need to watch very, very carefully about. Uh, Some people are great at cutting each other down. And uh, we need to uh, watch this because it can lead to doing more harm than we intend for it to do, and especially uh, when we're angry. And so Jesus wants us to know that that feeling of anger needs to be uh, expressed only in a right way. It's difficult to know how to be angry at the right thing at the right time to the right degree. And so we have to watch that. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. In other words, our worship is no real good. We cannot really have fellowship with the Lord uh, when we have malice and hatred in our heart toward our brother. Better to put the communion cup down and go and be reconciled Better to put the hymn book down and go and be reconciled uh, than to uh, worship uh, when there is malice between us and uh, our brother. Make uh, friends quickly with your opponents at law while you're with him on the way in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. I guess the best way to explain that is settle it out of court. Uh, Verse 26 Truly I say to you, you shall not come out until you have paid up the last cent. Now then we come to another interpretation of another Old Testament law. And may I remind you that the Ten Commandments, which God gave to Moses at Sinai, Jesus did not abrogate those commandments. He came to show us how they are to be fulfilled. And out of the Ten Commandments given... Nine of them are reaffirmed in the Gospels and the Epistles. The only place where we would find a change would be in the keeping of the Sabbath day, uh, which we uh, revere as the Lord's day in the resurrection. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed already adultery with her in his heart. And if your right eye makes you stumble... Tear it out and throw it from you, 
For it is better for you that one of your parts of your body should perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away from you, for it is better for you that one of the parts of your body should perish than for your whole body to go into hell. And then I want to read, in keeping with this, a word that I think will bring you some comfort. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and he said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Amen. I was telling the prayer meeting the other night when we were studying a passage in Ephesians which speaks about the inheritance which we have in Christ Jesus and the riches which are ours in him and also the responsibilities. And with every great uh, blessing, of course, there comes responsibilities, and we'll talk about some of the responsibilities this morning. But when we speak of the inheritance in which we enter, I think one of the funniest cartoons I ever had any dealings with was the cartoon of a of a lawyer who was present at the reading of a will. And uh, he said, I, John, he was reading this will of the man who had died, and he, it, to all these greedy relatives who were standing around. There's an old saying, where there's a will, there's relatives. And uh, he said, I, John Jones, being of sound mind and body, spin it all. <laughs> and, uh, and then he said, and to Aunt Louise, whom I promised to mention in my will, hi, Aunt Louise. <laughs> well, our Lord Jesus left us a gracious will. He left us a, a, a New Testament. And that New Testament in his blood is the assurance of grace and the forgiveness of sins. But with that forgiveness, he also has called us to be a new society in him. And he wants us to live as a new society before him. Now, last week we talked about the dragon of anger that some, and hostility, which sometimes is inside us, 
and which may be suppressed to our detriment and uh, which we have to get out into the open and look at. And uh, this morning when my, I went in to eat breakfast and my wife had the breakfast before me and wanted to know the title of the sermon, and I said, well, the title is Please Don't Feed the Dragon, and she eyed me. <laughs> uh, uh, the, there's, a, there's a dragon in us all, and the dragon, of course, is that uncontrollable part about us, that thing which we think is uncontrollable, but which can be controlled if we are willing to submit to the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I'm grateful that one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit that are listed for us in Galatians 5 uh, is self-control. Uh, because what would we be uh, without that? And so this morning, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what you've been talking about all week. We've been talking uh, in the college here about uh, courtship and marriage. You know what this is? It's a marriage ceremony. And uh, one of the things that it does is to lay for us the groundwork by which marriage is instituted. I don't know how many times I've said these words over the years, but they're sweet words, and they're precious words, and they're words worth your remembering. Dearly beloved, we are assembled here in the presence of God to join this man and this woman in holy marriage, which is instituted of God, regulated by his commandments, blessed by our Lord Jesus Christ, and to be held in honor among all men. Let us therefore reverently remember that God is established in sanctified marriage for the welfare and happiness of mankind. Our Savior has declared that a man shall, shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. By his apostles he has instructed those who enter into this relationship to cherish a mutual esteem and love, to bear with each other's infirmities and weaknesses, to comfort each other in sickness, trouble and sorrow, in honesty and industry to provide for each other and for their household in temporal things, to pray for and to encourage each other in the things which pertain to God, and to live together as the heirs, see that's that word, the heirs of the grace of life. And then for as much as these two persons have come hither to be made one in this holy estate, if there be any here present who knows any just cause why they may not lawfully be joined in marriage, I require him now to make it known or ever after to hold his peace. Now then, I read those words to you because I want you to understand that when God looked at man and saw that it was not good for him to be alone, God created man so that he should have a companion, a helpmeet to be with him. And in his creation of, of woman, he gave to man and to woman the marvelous gift of sex, which is to be a means of the expression of love and of fulfillment. Now, he hedges his gracious gifts about with because he wants them to be guarded from being spoiled. He knows that they can be hurt by people who misuse and abuse them. A God does not wish to take from us good things. He wishes to preserve for us good things. 
And it is for this reason that this matter of sex is so strictly to be spoken of as far as Christians are concerned, strictly to be lived out under the guidance of the Holy Spirit in the plain teachings of Scripture. Uh, we happen to live in a world, uh, and at a certain time in the history of our own country, uh, where so much is destroying the Christian home and the Christian concept of sex and marriage, that this has created great conflict and enormous misery uh, for our society. Dr. Armin Nikolai, uh, who is one of the most prominent psychiatrists in the whole world, uh, his new book in psychiatry is the textbook in psychiatry at Duke Medical School. Uh, Dr. Nikolai is an evangelical Christian, by the way. Dr. Nikolai at Harvard and who is a professor at Harvard Med School, predicts that within the very near future we will see a higher percentage of mental illness, the assassination of people in authority becoming a regular fact of life, violence in the family increasing, an increase in suicide, and that sex will lose its meaning with perversion becoming commonplace. This is the kind of world to which we as believers in the Lord Jesus who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit are called upon to bear a testimony and a witness. Now, why should this be? I think that one of the reasons, and I know this is an old song with me, but it's one that you simply have to pay attention to, and that's the pervasive influence of the media, which governs all our lives to such an incredible extent. Television is the dominant influence in American life today. The average child under five watches an average of 23 and five-tenths hours of television per week. If you multiply that over a 17-year period, you will find that the average high school graduate will have logged 15,000 hours of television, more than any other activity with the exception of sleep. Now when you stop to think of this and then you put alongside it what kind of fare you see on television, and I'm reading from February 1979 publications at this point. Here is a review of a book on television uh, by a Marielle Coakley. has produced a devastating expose of television industry. In 20 chapters, she tells of the daily mounting of moral decay in America, which she says will soon bring our society crashing down. She describes the dangers to our, that our children are exposed to when they view such programs as Three's Company, One Day at a Time, Charlie's Angels, Eight's Enough, Soap, The Newlywed Game, and others where sex is the center of the plot in all of these. Now then, what you do is you see a subtle undermining of the thing which God gives to us as something beautiful and holy and undefiled when within the bonds of marriage and under the instructions of his word, and we see it wreak havoc and make shipwreck upon our people. This past week when I saw the Vice Premier, Deng Xiaoping, uh, on television, 
and heard all the TV reports, I couldn't help but think of the great contribution we'll make to China now. We'll rot their teeth out with Coca-Cola and then uh, their morals out with our X-rated movies and disco dancing. The, this will be a big thing that will go back. And then this is uh, one of the things that we have to deal with when we come to the matter of adultery in, in Luke chapter 5, in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus is teaching us from the Sermon on the Mount. What he wants to tell us here is, first of all, the principle of respect. We respect the gift of sex. We respect it as a precious gift from God, and therefore, because we respect the giver, we're going to read the instructions that come with this great gift and govern our lives not by the mills of fantasy and imbecility that Hugh Hefner and his ilk make millions out of, and not by the purveyors of their unrealistic uh, emphasis upon sex and pornography in the films that we uh, have produced, but we are going to the Word of God. And you must remember that chastity, that is a pure and holy life that does not engage in sex outside of marriage, was the positively one new virtue which Christianity brought into the world. This is what William Barclay, who is one of the uh, finest of the uh, students of classical uh, Greek and the Greek period and Roman period around the time in which the Christian church came in. And although I don't agree with Dr. Barclay on some things, I certainly agree with him here. The earliest Christians stood out like a lily against the mud in comparison to the society that they had to live in. That's why they were called the salt of the earth and the light of the world by Jesus, that uh, they would staunch that which was corrupt and evil, and they would bring light that would be wholesome light and good light to live by. We need that light terribly today. We need for Christian people to get into the field of television and journalism and uh, do something about the uh, corruption that exists there. There are many people who wonder if America has gone so far down the road now that it's almost too late. I think it's never too late when the power of God is turned to and we remember that. But, so first of all, we think about the gift of sex and the respect that it is to be recorded. Now then, what Jesus says here, ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now the word here for adultery is, is also interchangeable with the word for fornication. It's simply sex outside of marriage by people who are married, committing sex with uh, unmarried people or married uh, uh, some other person's husband or wife and also people who are not married committing sex. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, draw a little line under lust after her, uh, because the fleeting animal impulse that uh, is quickened by a person uh, when they see someone uh, to whom they're magnetically attracted of the opposite sex is not condemned. That's created by God. 
the thoughts that uh, come and we mull upon and gaze upon in a wrong way and would pursue to an end that would lead to sin is what is condemned. Just as anger uh, has to be a feeling that is controlled, and, but it has its seed in that feeling that gets out of hand here, sex is something that can get out of hand too. And so that means for the believer, uh, he is to look at what Jesus has said here, whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after hath already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he recommends surgery for this principle of desire. And the surgery is right drastic. If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee for one of thy members, uh, that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Now let me speak a little bit uh, to the desire that comes. There were people in the time in which Paul wrote the Corinthian letter who said, uh, water is made to drink if you're thirsty, and I am. And uh, uh, food is made to eat if you're hungry. And so sex is just like this, but it's not just like that. You're going to die if you don't get any water. And you're going to die if you don't eat some food. But you're not going to die if you don't get sex. It is a controllable instinct. And it can be controlled and should be controlled. Uh, and this is something that we do want to remember. We remember that it's a gift that God gives us for the welfare of mankind. And none of us would be here without it. Uh, but we also are to see to it that it is controlled. It is not uh, in the same way uh, like food and drink in that, uh, that Paul was teaching the Corinthians about here. Then I want to deal with one thing that I get these crazy people who, who say, well, you know, you got to, if you suppress this psychological urge to, to sex, uh, you're going to cause a lot of trouble. But people often misunderstand what psychology teaches. It has been my great privilege to uh, work for a good many years with, a, I think, a very good psychiatrist. Uh, he has an excellent track record of getting people back to work again and gluing them together so they can carry on. And uh, I like him very much, and he's got a Christian system of values that he operates from. I have a son at medical school, and his desire is to go into the field of psychiatry, and so this is something that we talk about a good bit. Repression uh, is a term that is misunderstood. It's a technical term, and it um, is different uh, uh, the psychological term repression. Let me, let me read you what the textbook said. But repressed is here a technical term. It does not mean suppressed in a sense of denied or resisted. 
a repressed desire or thought is one which has been thrust into the subconscious, usually at a very early age, and can now come before the mind only in a disguised and unrecognizable form. Repressed sexuality does not appear to the patient to be sexuality at all. When an adolescent or an adult is engaged in repressing a conscious desire, he is not dealing with a repression, nor is he in the least danger of creating a repression. On the contrary, those who are seriously attempting chastity are more conscious and are more conscious and soon know a great deal more about their own sexuality than anyone else. And this is something that we need to uh, keep in mind. Uh, probably the greatest danger that I have seen from uh, a repressed thing that comes out in an ugly way is really not so much with sex anymore as it is with grief reactions. In my work with my psychiatrist friend over the years, um, we have constantly more trouble with people who have repressed grief than repressed sex. I'm just about sick of every time I turn on the television getting some other book or something else about sex. We've never had so many books on it and so much misery connected with it. Uh, and uh, so it's been overemphasized at that point. And so we want to remember uh, that. Now we've talked about a respect uh, for the gift that God has made, and we've talked about this principle of desire, that when I learn to control a desire, that's sublimation, and that's keeping it in its proper perspective, that's not allowing it to control me, and that's something that differentiates us from the animals. No one likes to be called a, a pig. No one likes to be called an animal. And uh, we are different from animals, and the Lord means for us to uh, have control, and he wants us to uh, control our bodies. I have a poem that I was trying to find by Edward Carpenter. It says, do not pay too much attention to the stupid old body. When you've trained it and made it healthy and beautiful, and you're a willing servant, why do not then reverse the order and become its slave and attendant? The dog must follow its master, not the master the dog. Remember that if you walk away from it and leave it behind, it will have to follow you. It will grow by following, by continually reaching up to you. Incredibly beautiful it will become and suffused by a kind of intelligence. But if you turn and wait upon it, its mouth and its belly and its sex wants and all its little ape-like tricks, preparing and dishing up pleasures and satisfactions for these. Why then, instead of the body becoming like you, you will become like the body, incredibly stupid and unformed. Therefore, quite lightly and decisively, at each turning point in the path, that is, as you grow older, Leave your body a little behind with its hungers and sleeps and funny little needs and vanities. Pay no attention to them. Slipping out at least a few steps in advance until it can catch up with you again. 
absolutely determined not to be finally bound or weighted down by it are fossiled into one set form, which after all is death. Now you see that makes us control the body instead of the body and its desires uh, controlling us. And that's what Jesus is meaning when he speaks of these radical surgeries, if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it away. Now he doesn't really mean tear your eyeball out and throw it away. If you've had a lustful thought, you'd still have your left eye and you'd be looking at people with that. And then if you pulled your left eye out, you'd still have your memories and you'd be coping with that if you were blind. So you don't go blinding yourself. Um, but what he is speaking of here uh, is that there are certain films, uh, there are certain television programs, there are certain magazines, there are certain posters and books uh, that ought not to have any place in a person who claims to belong to Jesus Christ. If we claim to belong to him, then we ought to live faithfully to it. I remember reading once about a mother who came to visit her son uh, in college, and when she walked into his room, she was absolutely horrified to find all these nude photographs up on the wall, and it made her sick that he had such a cheap uh, idea of sex. She didn't scold him. She didn't say anything to him about it. She just went home. And she wrote him a lovely letter and told him how much she loved him, how she had prayed for him before he was ever born, how she wanted him to be a strong, fine man, and to love God and to enjoy the things which God had created. And she said, I'm sending you a picture, a picture of the one I want to be the master of your life. And I hope you'll hang it up in your room. And it was one of those Solomon's uh, head of Christ, a face of Christ. Well, he unwrapped the picture and he put it up in the room. But somehow the other stuff just didn't look right. And so he began to take away the pictures next to it. And then finally he took away all of the pictures that were there and put them away. He didn't want that trash to be cluttered up. Jesus has a way of doing that. He brings light. And when he comes into our life, he does it that way. Now that's what it means when I write, I offend thee. The eye is understanding. When I read something, I say I get light on the subject when I read about it. Okay, be careful what you read about it. Read about something which is in harmony and in keeping with what Jesus would teach you. He died on a cross to redeem you, to redeem your body. He died on a cross so that life might be enjoyed by you abundantly and full, not to take away joy. You can trust him. You can't trust Hugh Hefner. You can't trust the people who try to exploit you through advertising because they want to sell products uh, so much that they will do anything in the way of sex in order to catch your attention. No, trust Jesus. Your body belongs to him. It's not your own. It's been bought with a price. You've heard me say many times, it's not a fun house. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. And it's one that we ought to reverence and remember very much. I brought up here a lot of things with me because this is a subject that a lot of us have to deal with from time to time and a lot of our counseling goes into it. I uh, have a great favorite hero of the Middle Ages whose name is Thomas Aquinas. Our Catholic friends will be glad to know that. Thomas Aquinas uh, came 
in 1228 into the world. And he was one of the most brilliant human minds that ever lived. He was a great man of God as well. He was called the angelic doctor. And Gilbert Chesterton wrote a book about Thomas Aquinas. He also wrote one about Francis of Assisi, the other great Roman Catholic saint. But the angelic doctor, Thomas Aquinas, was one of those huge, corpulent people, a very, very heavy man from the time he was a little child. In fact, they said that uh, he was so heavy that in the monastery they had to cut a crescent out so he could sit down to eat. Uh, he was a big, hulking guy who looked like a walking wine barrel. And uh, uh, yet he had a brilliant mind. And uh, they thought he was dumb when he was a little kid because the, the teachers would be teaching him things and all of a sudden, uh, out of silence that he maintained all the time, he would suddenly say, what is God? And uh, he was a very profound thinker and a very godly man. And when he got into the Gospels and when he got into the Epistles and when he got into the Scriptures and when he got into the writings of Augustine and the early fathers of the church, he became a tremendous intellect who shaped much of the thinking that those of us who are Christians live by to this day. Well, when he went, although he came from a wealthy family, he went into a monastery. And uh, there were people who wanted to tease him. Someone once called him the dumb ox. And Albert Magnus, one of the other great intellects of that time, said, don't call him a dumb ox because when that ox bellows, the whole world is going to listen. And that's been true. And if you study history, you'll find it. Well, once some of the, the brothers in the monastery who were not as pious or as godly as, as Aquinas decided that they would uh, uh, tempt him into sin. So they got a prostitute and they had her gorgeously arrayed and attired and they had her go into his room one night when he was sitting before the fire reading and thinking and looking into the blazing fire. And when this seductive woman came into the room, he heard her come in and his mind was quick as lightning. And he knew automatically what had happened. And he sprang to the fireplace and he grabbed a pine knot that was burning and he turned around and bellowed with a loud roar and ran at her with this thing. And she went out the door as fast as she could, screaming. <laughs> and then when he had barred the door in back of her, he ground the black uh, faggot that was burning into the door and made the sign of the cross. Well, he made a very effective impression on his brethren about the fact that he intended to maintain a holy life. And I expect the young woman didn't forget it for a while either. Uh, now, these are things that uh, we should remember. The, their respect and the desire. Now, where does the control come? It comes from commitment. And it comes from the Holy Spirit working in our life. If our right hand offend thee, what does that have to do? Uh, that means someone who helps me. It means someone who is my friend, but yet who might lead me astray. And if they lead me astray, then I am to avoid company uh, or helpers or people who are going to lead me away from my Lord Jesus Christ. I want to stay close to him, and I want him to be the Lord of all of my life. There is a 
a hymn which I wish we had in this hymn book. I would be true, for there are those who trust me. I would be pure, for there are those who care. I would be strong, for there is much to suffer. I would be brave, for there is much to dare. I would be friend of all, the foe, the friendless. I would be giving and forget the gift. I would be humble, for I know my weakness. I would look up and laugh and love and live. I would be prayerful through each busy moment. I would be constantly in touch with God. I would be tuned to hear the slightest whisper. I would have faith to keep the path Christ trod. How much do you love Jesus? Would you be willing to be true to him though you were the only one in the whole world we're coming into a sort of a new dark ages now where there is need for young people who will be faithful to Jesus Christ no matter what that entails. If you have been guilty of the sin of immorality, then take heart from the passage that was read to you. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Fill your mind with positive and good things. Fill your heart with those things which will bring glory to him. Let us pray. And now, God our Father, set our sights on things above that we may see things here and now as they really are, using our physical powers in thy service and for the benefit of others, learning to control our desires and our passions that they may help rather than hurt, giving ourselves to the life that is in Christ for mutually satisfying relationships in the world and at home, and following Christ, in whose name we offer thee our prayer. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God our Father, and the fellowship and the instruction of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and guide, be and abide with us all, now and forevermore.